Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Two weeks from today is Resurrection Sunday for this particular year, 2023. In years past, pre-COVID, we referred to that as Homecoming Weekend, and we had people come in from all over the country, indeed some from other countries, who would come here to be part of our homecoming celebration with us. And then COVID happened, and then everything was kind of a jump ball. So last year, all we did was we had our Sunday service and communion. This year, we're doing essentially the same thing, but we're going to stretch it out a little bit. Saturday night, just as a time of fellowship, We're all going to get together for dinner. We're going to go to the Simple Grill here in Smyrna. And it's a free meal. I mean, you can't object. It's a free meal. GCA pays for it. And so just come and eat with us. Just come and hang out with us Saturday night. I think it'll be around 5 o'clock. And then perhaps Paul will organize a game night that evening so that we can uh, come back here and just, ooh, so that we can all just come back here. It's the hair that does it. It's, it's that that makes people go, ooh. Uh, right, Steve? It's the hair. Yeah, I'm telling you. So we can get together here in the evening, have some fellowship, have some games. Sunday morning, we will have our communion service here. And then afterwards, potluck. We call it pot providence. Just be prepared to bring something that you can share with everybody else. And we will just have communion that morning and then fellowship and food together. In years past, that has always been a really, really happy and special morning. So come be part of that. Now, if you want to come to dinner with us Saturday night, I need to get a head count. I need to be able to tell them about how many people we are. Which means if you're out there on the internet and you're planning to be here with us, even if you have told me that you're coming, tell me that you want to come to the dinner. Email me, jim at salvationbygrace.org. Next week, there will be a sign-up sheet out on the table out here for everybody from GCA who plans to come to the dinner. So think about it, and if you want to be with us right around 5 o'clock on the Saturday before Resurrection Sunday and come eat with us, you need to sign up or you need to email me so that we know how many people that is. Fair enough? Fair enough. We're willing to pay for your dinner. All you got to do is send me a lousy email. I figure that's a fair deal. All you got to do is let me know you're coming. 
And it's good food. It's a good place to eat. We've been real happy with it so far. We have been talking theodicy for a couple of weeks now. Theodicy is a defense of God, a defense of his holiness, given the fact that sin and misery and evil do occur in God's creation. So how do we balance those two realities, that God is holy and righteous and good, and evil and sin happen in the world? What I hope I have shown you the last couple of weeks is that evil itself and the trouble of this world is part of God's creation on purpose, because ultimately it is leading to the glorification of Christ. On a very, very simple basis, I mentioned last week that Christ is referred to as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before there was a world, before there were people, before there was the fall in the garden, before there was any sin in God's creation, there was already a failsafe. There was already a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Now, why would God, who knows everything and can do everything any way he wants to do it according to his good pleasure, why would he make sure that there was a failsafe in place unless he knew that invariably human beings were going to be corrupt and sinful, the fall was going to happen, and that there was going to need to be a savior because mankind would be sinful? The end of that entire process, then, would be the glorification of Christ as all of the trophies of grace end up in his eternal presence, giving him all the honor, praise, and glory because they recognize that there's nothing within themselves that got them saved. So that's the master plan of God. That's the big picture of all of human history And that is the big picture of the Bible. So last week, we looked at Habakkuk at the end of the message. And I started showing you examples in the Bible where God brings about trouble in order to produce his greater good ultimately. And those kinds of examples are throughout the Bible We're going to look at several more of them this morning. This morning is just really going to be devoted to looking at passages in the Bible where God very purposefully and specifically brings trouble into people's lives for the purpose of bringing about his greater good. I keep saying evil, sin, depravity, the trouble of this world is a tool that God is using in order to ultimately glorify himself and glorify his son. How can I prove that? Well, by the fact that the book of Revelation exists and the fact that the devil and his angels end up in the lake of fire. All of the rebels who have followed the Antichrist and followed Satan are all going to end up in the lake of fire. Ultimately, all the enemies are going to be destroyed. The last enemy is death. And then we end up in a place where God dwells eternally with his people 
They don't need a temple because he is their temple. They don't need the sun because he is the sun. He is the light. And we dwell in holiness forever with him. And there's no more evil. Okay, so if he can eradicate evil the way that the book of Revelation says he's going to do, then he could do that at any point he wants to. And he hasn't done it yet. Why not? Because it serves his purpose. And we just happen to be in the midst of God's great and grand plan for all of humanity. And that's why sometimes we struggle and we have difficulties. We have problems in this life because he is producing faith in us. He is driving us to our knees where our only hope is him. He's doing that on purpose in order to build our faith for our eternity. I keep saying this lifetime, this planet is all training ground for eternity. He's preparing you for eternity by producing in you faith in Christ. That faith is going to be traded for righteousness in the heavenly accounts. And therefore, God is bringing those troubles and trials and difficulties into your life in order for you to turn to him in faith. That faith gets exchanged for righteousness. He ultimately glorifies you. You end up in heaven, the very place he intended for you to be from the beginning when he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Does that make sense? Yes. That's the big picture of you. Why are you here? Why are you going through what you're going through? What is life all about? It's about that. It's ultimately about God glorifying himself in glorifying his son. So let's start this morning. See, technically I have not started. Still introduction. Let's start this morning in Isaiah 45. Turn there. I do want you to see it. In Isaiah 45, God is talking to Cyrus. Cyrus is a Persian king who does not know God. He is not an Israelite. He is not a God-fearer. He does not worship Yahweh. And God declares to him, I am the Lord, and there is no one else. There is no God except me. Because the Persians had plenty of other gods, the same way that the Egyptians had their pantheon of gods, The same way that the Greeks and later the Romans had all their mythological gods and all their demigods. The history of the world is absolutely littered with all these various gods and demigods and things that have been worshipped and idols. So God starts out when talking to Cyrus by saying, I'm the only God. The same way that he said to Moses, I am because I am. I am the Lord, and there is no one else. There is no God except me. I will arm you, though you have not known me, so that people may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is none else. You get the point? He has said it repeatedly. I'm the one God. I'm the only God. There are no other gods. I'm the only God. I am the one that raises up kings. I'm the one that takes down nations. I'm the only God. Everything that you've ever seen in your life is a result of the fact that I, God, have created it, have decided it, have formed it, 
and am sustaining it. I am the power behind everything. I am the one and the only God. And then in order to demonstrate his absolute sovereignty over everything, he declares in verse 7, I am the one forming the light and creating darkness. I am the one causing well-being and creating disaster. It's the Hebrew word raw. It means calamity. The King James translates that word as evil. I'm the one who creates good things. I'm the one who creates evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Light, I did it. Darkness, I did it. Good times, everything going well, I did it. Calamity, trouble, evil in your life, I did it. Because I am the God over absolutely everything. It is definitional to who God is. And here in introducing himself to Cyrus, he says, I'm the God that does all that. Which means that we have to be willing to bow the knee before the God who not only blesses us and brings good things into our lives, but we equally have to bend the knee and worship the God who brings the trouble into our lives. Because, as we read last week, as Paul wrote in Romans, Romans 8, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. In the category of all things, we would certainly have to say, well, then what about the trouble? What about the evil? What about the difficulties? All things, all those things work ultimately together for God's glory and for our good. I am the God who does all these things. Verse 8 says, drip down heavens from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness sprout with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Does that sound familiar? Sounds very much like what we saw out of Haggai last week, where God said, the one who lives by faith is the righteous one. The one who questions me, his soul within him is not right. Well, here Isaiah says the same thing. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. A piece of pottery among other earthenware pottery pieces. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or will the thing that you are making say to you, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you fathering? Or says to a woman, to what are you giving birth? So in all those examples, whether it's the man who's a father, the woman who's a mother giving birth, or whether it's a potter making pottery on a wheel, in all of those examples, God says, you don't have the right to say, what are you doing? And then he applies that to himself and says, you are not allowed. Woe to the one who quarrels. With his maker, it's not going to go well with you if you're standing up on your hind legs yelling at God about how God does things because he's going to be God the way he is God, whether you like it or not. 
Instead, you need to get down on your knees and say, yes, sir. Because I know that ultimately you have my best interest at heart. I know that all of these things are going to work out for my ultimate benefit. So whatever I'm going through, I recognize that you're the one that's doing it and you deserve worship regardless. Now, that also describes a very, very sovereign God. And I have been saying throughout this theodicy study that the only way to create a truly biblical theodicy is to recognize God is absolutely sovereign. It's very, very difficult to create a biblical theodicy if you believe, as so many folks do, as is so often taught in churches. As I was raised with this theology that says, whenever anything good happens to you, that's God. And when anything bad happens to you, that's Satan. Like God and Satan are in this great eternal grudge match, and we don't really know who's going to come out on top. And bad things happen to you, and you go, get away from me, Satan. And then good things happen, and you say, I'm blessed of the Lord. But God here just said, light, that's me. Dark, that's me. Good, that's me. Evil, that's me. He takes credit for absolutely all of it. And unless you comprehend him as being that sovereign, you can't possibly deal with the fact that there is trouble and sin and strife in this life and that God still is absolutely holy. And there is no contradiction between those two. The fact is, because God's holy and righteous, then everything he does is, by definition, holy and righteous. So we don't get to question him. We don't get to question his ways. We don't get to question his motives. We don't get to question the things that he does. All we can do is admit that his ways are right, because he's going to do it anyway. Anybody in your lifetime been through something that you thought, why? Why is this happening? I heard the chuckling. Apparently others have thought this too. Why? Why am I? Well, you know the answer to why me. The answer to why me is why not you? Why are you any different than the whole rest of humanity? You're going to go through trouble, difficulty, problems, and pain too. You don't get to question God because it all serves his purpose, because he is indeed sovereign. Even sin and evil serve the purpose of glorifying Christ, and that's what I've been attempting to demonstrate these three weeks. Because if it didn't serve his ultimate purpose, it wouldn't exist. Here, let's see if I can simplify it. Back in Genesis 3, God decided to make human beings. And he told them, you can eat of every tree in the garden. So he puts them in this wonderful garden that's full of trees bearing fruit. And he says, you can eat of everything in the garden. Just don't eat of that one tree in the center of the garden, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of that tree. Don't even touch that tree. If God didn't want them to be tempted by that tree, why put it in the garden? I mean, if he really, if his intention was that they would never eat from that tree, wouldn't he put it somewhere else? Maybe put it east of Eden. There in the garden, put it out there. 
No, God plants it in the middle of the garden and then points it out. See that one? Don't eat that one. I had young kids at one point. They're both in their 30s now, and yet they still have the same tendencies that children have. All of you who have young children know that the one thing you don't want to do is say to a kid, see that? Don't touch it. Because what's the first thing they want to do? Oh, yeah, I'm touching that. Oh, yeah. My mother tells me that one time while we were in Texas, they took us to a state fair somewhere, and there were cacti there. And she said to me, don't touch that. So I planted my hand on it, just whack. And then I screamed and cried. Oh, mom loved to tell that story. That's just typical of human beings. Don't touch that. Okay, God is the one who planted the tree in the middle of the garden, pointed it out, said, don't touch it. Then Satan's in the garden like a serpent. What's Satan doing in the garden? Couldn't God have kept him out of the garden? I mean, if he can say to the man and the woman, don't touch that tree, he can say to Satan, don't go in there. He can do whatever he wants. When Satan fell, he could have put him in the lake of fire immediately. But he didn't. Instead, he let him go into the garden and talk to the woman. Okay, so later, after the two, the woman and the the serpent have conspired, later he puts enmity between them. He separates them. He puts a division between them. Why didn't he do that at the front end? Why didn't he start with, oh, Satan and the woman are talking. I'll put some enmity between them so that they cannot conspire together. No, instead, not only did he provide the temptation, he provided the tempter. And then let the tempter talk to the woman. Why? Because there was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And there had to be a fall. Now, again, if you're of an Arminian persuasion and you think that human beings, by their own free will, determine how good or bad they are going to be, then you look at Adam and Eve and you say, those dummies, what were they thinking? We could have lived this wonderful, glorious, beautiful life forever in the garden if they had just not eaten from the tree. But they didn't have any choice but eat from the tree. They had to fall. God made sure they fell. He gave them the tree and the temptation, and they fell. Now, the glorious part of that story is after they fall and they realize they're naked and they sew up their own fig leaves to cover their nakedness, get to work doing their own works to try to hide their own sin. We all do that. We all go, oh, I've sinned against God. I got to get busy and fix this. And so God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, we read, and they hide themselves because they hear God. And so God says, Adam, where are you? As if God didn't know where he was. Adam, where are you? And he says, we hid because we heard you and we knew we were naked and uh, we hid. What does God do? Rather than allow them to utilize their own works in order to cover their own sinfulness, their own rebellion. The next thing we read is that God killed an animal because for sin comes death. The wages of sin is death. When someone sins, someone dies. 
And God allowed substitutionary sacrifice immediately as soon as there was sin. The minute that Adam and Eve sinned, an animal died, God made coverings out of skin and covered them rather than covering them with their own works. That's wonderful. It is the whole prototype of the gospel all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis in order to describe the big divine plan of God, which was make people, they sin and fall, they're covered by an atonement. There is a sacrifice of death that covers their sin, and we're still in relationship. That's the whole of the rest of the Bible. It's the story of redemption, and along the way, there is sin and evil and falling, and ultimately God's grace that makes up for everything else, the sacrifice of Christ, the single blood sacrifice that perfected forever all those who he redeemed through his blood. That's Hebrews 10, 14. And that once for all sacrifice that Jesus made was sufficient to accomplish the full salvation of those people who fell. So when those people get to heaven, who are they going to worship forever? Christ. Plan accomplished. And that's what God intended to do from the beginning. You get the point? Yes. I don't have time today to go into Joseph in Egypt. You can read about it again in Genesis. But the quick story is God told Abraham, you're going to have this land in perpetuity. It's going to be given to you and your descendants. It's forever yours. Abraham points out, I don't have any children God says, you're going to have as many children as the sands of the sea, as the stars of the heaven, and you're going to get this land forever. Abraham asked, how do I know that? What's going to be the evidence? God then tells him the next several hundred years of the history of his descendants and says, your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known, and they're going to serve there for 400 years. They're going to come out with greater substance than they went in. I'm going to bring them back to this very land, and I'm going to plant them here. That's the answer to your question. Abraham, of course, is going to be dead by the time that's all accomplished, which means that he was really telling the future descendants, when you come back to this land, know that I accomplished exactly what I said I was going to do because I'm God. Okay, so Abraham has Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac has Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Jacob Israel has 12 sons. They become the fathers of the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel are each descendants of those 12 sons of Jacob. And so the 12 sons end up really disliking Joseph because he's the one that came through Rachel, who was the preferred wife. Rachel had been barren while the other three, well, his other wife Leah and their handmaids had all given him children. And finally, Rachel brings forth Joseph. Well, Israel loves Joseph. Gives him a coat of many colors. You might have heard the musical. If you haven't, don't bother. Um, So Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. That happens. And then his brothers hate him so much that they put him in a ditch, throw animal blood on his beautiful coat, go back and tell dad he's dead when they really sold him to the Arameans. He ends up in Egypt, ends up being a servant in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife likes the cut of his jib. Is that too old, that language? Is that too unhip? 
She, she likes the look of Joseph. She makes a move on him. He says no. She grabs his toga. He runs out naked. She screams rape. Okay, he's in prison where he meets a baker and a cupbearer. And they've both had dreams. Turns out he's interpreting dreams. By the way, he's had a dream back when he was at home where he told his brethren, uh, you're all going to bow down to me. And they all really dislike that dream. That's part of the reason that they want to get rid of him. So anyways, he's interpreting the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, and he tells the baker, hey, you're dead. And he tells the cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your job. Sure enough, it happens. So one day, the cupbearer is with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a dream, this terrible dream, where he dreams that there were seven fat cows that come up out of the Nile, and then there's seven skinny cows that come up behind them, eat the fat cows, and Pharaoh's plagued. What does this mean? When his cupbearer says, you know, I met this guy in prison, except he says it in Egyptian. He says, you know, I, I, I knew this guy in prison, and he uh, can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh says, go get him. So Joseph comes and talks to Pharaoh and interprets the dream as you're going to have seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine, so you need to prepare for the seven years of famine. Pharaoh says to him, uh, you seem like just the man to lead that charge to store up as much grain as you possibly can during the good years so that we can make it through the bad years. Well, the famine finally happens. Little by little, all the Egyptians are coming to Pharaoh for his supply and they're giving away their cattle. They're giving away their homes. They're giving away their stuff. They give away their money. Finally, they sell themselves to Pharaoh. Pharaoh ends up incredibly powerful over all of Egypt, over all the people. Joseph is second only to Pharaoh. Meanwhile, that famine occurs also in Israel, and they hear that there's food in Pharaoh's house. So Israel, Jacob, sends his sons down, all except Benjamin, to go down and see if they can get any food in Egypt. They wind up standing in front of and bowing to the very dream-interpreting brother that they hated so much and wanted to see dead. They don't know it's him, but they're standing in front of him and worshiping him, just like the dream said. Okay, so he finally says, we are now in Genesis 50, that was all just getting you ready for Genesis 50. When Joseph's brothers, I'm starting to read at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin for what they did wrong, because they did wrong to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of your father. And Joseph went and he spoke to him, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant it for evil against me. Yeah, they meant evil against him. They claimed he was dead. They put him in a ditch. They sold him into slavery. He went into prison ultimately 
You meant it for evil. There's no denying that you meant it for evil. Look at the second half of the phrase. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph had the right concept of the sovereignty of God and was able to say, even though the events of my life were indeed evil and you meant them for evil, God brought about this good from that evil. God in his sovereignty accomplished the sustaining of my brethren because they had to continue as a nation. Joseph puts them in the land of Goshen, the best land in Egypt. They grow into a mighty group of people. The book of Exodus begins with, there was a Pharaoh who rose up who didn't know Joseph. He becomes afraid that maybe the Israelites are going to side with their enemies and will make war against Egypt, so he enslaves the Israelites. And they stay in Egypt as slaves for, what a surprise, 400 years exactly like God said was going to happen. So all of the evil that Joseph went through was part of God's plan to sustain Israel in order to get them into Egypt in slavery, in order to deliver them through Moses back to their promised land to prove his promise to Abraham in the first place when Abraham said, how am I going to know it? That's big stuff. That's a sovereign God. And all of the trouble, the evil, the slavery, 400 years. There were people in Israel who were born, lived, and died as slaves in Egypt. That was their whole life. They were slaves in Egypt. I would have to say that was a tough life. But they did it because God was answering a question that Abraham asked about, how am I going to know that this land is mine? Because sovereign God makes promises, keeps promises, and even the troubles that we go through in this life are ultimately leading (laughs) to God's good and divine plan. And you can't get around that. I don't care how much free will the Israelite Egyptian slaves came through. I I don't care how often they said, I don't want to be a slave no more. I'm tired of this slave thing. I quit. No, you're a slave for your whole life because you're a slave. That's what slave means. Okay, so that would be rough. That'd be difficult. But it was all part of God's overwhelming and divine plan. And you are just a piece of that. You are not the whole story. You are part of what God is divinely doing. And he can do with you whatever he wants. Be grateful that he put a fail-safe in plan before the foundation of the world. Be grateful that he gave you the knowledge of who Christ is. Be grateful that you get to live in America and have food and that you're not in slavery right now because the same God who is saving you is perfectly willing to put people in slavery for 400 years to accomplish his divine plan. You get it? I know I'm talking fast, but I'm determined to try to get through this this morning. The existence of evil does not negate the will, the holiness, or the good intentions of God. In fact, like I keep saying, he's in charge of evil. It serves his purposes. For instance, here's another example. Look at the way that God dealt with the prophets. You can turn, if you would, to 1 Kings 22, and I'll catch up with you there in just a moment. 1 Kings, we're going to be reading from chapter 22. 
Back in Judges 9, verse 23, it says, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Okay, so who sent an evil spirit between them? It wasn't Satan. It doesn't say the devil stirred them up. God intending to create trouble between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. He's the one that sent a troublesome, worrisome, evil spirit between them. Ezekiel 14.9 in the King James Version says, And if the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him, and I will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. The Legacy Standard Bible puts it this way. But if the prophet is enticed to speak a word, it is I, Yahweh, who have enticed that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. Listen to the sovereignty of God talking about his own prophets. And he says, if a prophet ends up lying and he's my prophet, it's because I put the lie in his mouth. And then I will judge him for the fact that he lied to my people Israel and I'll cut him off. Can you see why Paul would say, you'll say to me then, how does he yet find fault? Seeing as how nobody resists his will. And Paul's answer is, you don't get to answer back. Who are you? Okay, so now we're in 1 Kings 22, the story of Micaiah. We're going to have to run through this quickly. I have several friends who say that this is the passage when we taught on it years ago, that finally convinced them of the sovereignty of God. It's a powerful passage. There had been no war between the Arameans and Israel. That's the way that the chapter begins. And in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hands of the king of Aram, the Arameans. And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me down to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. Check and let's make sure that we should go to this war. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, 400 prophets, and said to them, shall I go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And they all said, go up for the Lord will give it into the hands of the king. 400 prophets said, go up to war. You're going to win. You're going to do fine. Seems pretty convincing. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here? that we may inquire of him. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him (laughs) because he does not prophesy good things concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. No, no. A prophet of God who would say bad things about you? No. (laughs) The king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah, and the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, 
were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And then Zedekiah, the son of Cha'ana, that's a great word. I just, I love that name, Cha'ana. He made horns of iron for himself and said, thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. So he's bringing visual aids. He's walking in with these horns and saying, you're going to push the Arameans. He's really convincing the king. And all the prophets were prophesying, saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him and said, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into your hands, the king. Apparently, the king realized he was being sarcastic because then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak nothing to me but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he said, here's Micaiah's prophecy. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, see, didn't I tell you? He never says anything good about me. Did I not tell you that he would prophesy no good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And then Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab to go up and die at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this and another said that. And then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving, lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And then God said, you are to entice him and you will also prevail. Go and do it now. Did God just approve lying prophets in the mouth of 400 different men who would all go and tell the king, absolutely, God's with you, go to war, so that he would go to war and die on the battlefield because that was God's intention. Wow, that's a sovereign God. Verse 23, now therefore behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all your prophets and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Evil, the Lord has declared evil against you because he's the God that forms the light and forms the darkness. He's the God that causes the good stuff, the well-being. He's also the God that brings about the evil. And so Micaiah, knowing that God tells the king that God himself has put a lying spirit in all your prophets and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. And then Zedekiah, the son of Cha'ananananananana, <laughs> came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, 
Where did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? In other words, no, no, I'm telling the truth, and how dare you? And he slapped him. And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on the day when you enter the room to hide yourself. And then the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, And to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. And Micaiah said, if you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken to me. And he said, listen, all you people. So the end of that story is, sure enough, he goes to war. Sure enough, he dies. Sure enough, Micaiah was right vindicated, demonstrably vindicated, which means he was right when he said, I saw God talking to all the spirits in heaven when a lying, deceptive spirit said, oh, I'll go lie to him. God approved his plan and even said, oh, you'll do it and you'll accomplish it, which means God put power behind it. You're absolutely going to do it, which means that God put a lying spirit in the mouth of four Hundred prophets. Okay, so who's in charge? God's the one in charge of that entire story. But if your theology does not allow for a God who also commands lying spirits to tell lies in order to bring about the calamity that he has already predetermined for you, then you have a truncated version of the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible keeps saying, I do everything but let me also say that knowing that he's the God who does everything is really really comforting to those of us who know him to those of us who love him to those of us who are being saved and redeemed by him it is really really good news to know that he's in charge of everything because that means Satan can't get you. He can go about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, not devouring at will, out devouring who he can devour. And he can't get you because the God who's in charge of everything is protecting you. There's no way that you, silly little measly little you, there's no way that you can mess up the divine plan of God because he's the God that does everything. He's the God that chose you. He's the one that predestined you. He's the one that called you. He's the one that justified you. He's the one that glorified you. He is the one that is conforming you into the image of his son at this very moment and can't nobody stop him while he's in the business of saving you. Because he's in charge of everything. I don't want a God. I don't need a God who is waiting around to find out what I might do. Because I know me, I'll do dumb stuff. I don't need a God who is waiting on the free will of his creatures to somehow make him God or agree that he can do stuff. That God doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible, and that is a weak-kneed God who really ought to worship me because he's waiting for me to make him God. I love, I trust, I worship the God of the Bible because he's sovereign. 
The sovereignty of God over everything, including the evil of this world, means that he can say definitely that there is no trial, no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you can bear it. That's what Paul wrote. Mm -hmm. And the only way God can do that is to be in charge of everything. Oh, there's so much more. Turn to Haggai 1. Find Haggai in the Old Testament. I have been talking in very large terms here. I've been talking in big theological terms, but let's see if I can bring this down to brass tacks for just a minute. The little book of Haggai in the Old Testament, starting right at the very beginning in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be built. Haggai is a prophet during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. And as you know, the temple began being rebuilt, and then there was so much opposition that the people just kind of stopped. And there was a period of waiting before Ezra shows up, reads the law, re-inspires the people, and they start building again. And so God sees this, and he says, these people are saying, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this, my house, lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Okay, now he's going to describe their lives, and he's going to say, everything's going wrong in your life. Can you guess why? And his answer is going to be, because my house lays waste. While you live in your wonderful paneled homes, my house that needs to be rebuilt, the temple where my worship takes place, needs to be rebuilt. And you're busy saying, no, it's not time for that now. And so here is God taking credit for the trouble, the difficulty, the trials in their life. It's just another demonstration. All I'm doing is demonstrating time and time again that God is in charge of the trouble and the trials of your life in order to produce his ultimate good. Verse 6. Consider your ways. You have sown much. You've been out in your fields spreading seed, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns money earns wages to put them in a purse with holes in it. Your money's just going to disappear. Have you ever had that happen in your life? That sense of, whoa, there's too much month at the end of the money. My money's just disappeared. Okay, God says, I did that. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, I blow on it. And then he asks the question, why? Why, when you bring home the end of your hard work, do I make it just disappear on you? Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house which lays desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent to him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Okay, so what was God's initial purpose? Show reverence to me. Worship me. I'm God, I'm the only God. I deserve my worship. They decided not to rebuild the house. How did he drive them to do the right thing? Through the trouble he was bringing into their lives. I keep saying that if we can figure out that trouble in this life drives us to our knees, trouble in this life makes us cry out to God, trouble in this life drives us to our only hope, if we can figure that out, God can figure that out. And the first chapter of Haggai is a perfect example of it, where God uses the trouble of this life to drive people back to him, to his worship, to doing what they should have done in the first place. So let's say you're going through your little life and you veer off the path a little bit. God in love is going to correct you and bring you back on the path again. How's he going to do it? Is he going to go, hey, come on, Luann, noogies. Hey, here we go. Come on. Get back in line, Luann. Silly sheep. No. He's going to do it through trouble, isn't he? He's going to do it through the trials that make you cry out for him and you end up back with him. Here, I'll close with this. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless, pagan, lawless, wicked men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by the power of death What does that verse say? It says, you wicked, evil men, 
with your wicked, evil hearts and your wicked, evil intentions, you did the most wicked, evil thing in the history of human beings. You killed the only righteous one. You nailed him to a chunk of wood for only going about doing good, doing right, and teaching you about God. The only sinless, perfect one who ever walked on planet Earth, you destroyed because you're evil. It's the worst thing that ever happened in human history. And it's the best thing that ever happened in human history because without that, you have no hope. It's remarkable. It's the worst and the best thing that ever happened because God can enter into the terrible things, the evil things, the horrendous things. He can enter into the natural sinful proclivities of human beings and he can work his good through it. He can work his good despite it. He can work his good on account of it. He utilizes it completely in order to bring about the ultimate glorification of his son, which is what happened at Calvary. You killed him, you nailed him to a chunk of wood. And he rose again because it wasn't possible that he could be held by death. He was ultimately glorified by your decidedly evil because God is actually, literally, that sovereign. He is. He's that in charge. So the next time you go through trouble in this lifetime, the next time you hear yourself say, I'm not going to get through this one. This one's going to kill me. The next time you hear yourself thinking, why me? The next time you reach the point where you think you're just going to break. Remember that there's nothing, nothing that enters your life that doesn't first pass through nail-scarred hands. First it went through him to get to you. He didn't just allow it. He decreed it. He determined it. And why? For his glory and for your good. And That's what he's busy doing right now. I've said it for several weeks now. If you have any inkling of the God of the Bible, get on your face, worship that God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.